Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan and this is the first episode in a new series where our focus will be on the key issues affecting social workers across the UK nations. We are of course living through an unprecedented period in our history. The effects of COVID-19 have reached all of us, whether the impacts have been to our health, the well-being of family members, or in terms of drastic changes to our working practices or social lives, none of us have been unaffected. It's therefore incredibly appropriate that we launch this series with a discussion on the role of social workers in disasters. And for today's conversation, I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Lena Dominelli and Basra England's Maris Stratulis. Maris and Lena, how are you both doing? Good. Yeah, doing really well, Andy. Good to be here. Great, great. I'm glad you're both well. Okay, so to introduce my guests properly, Professor Lena Dominelli is a social worker and holds a chair in social work at the University of Stirling. Previously co-director at the Institute of Hazards, Risk and Resilience at Durham University, Lena is now director of the University of Stirling's MSc in Disaster Interventions and Humanitarian Aid. Maris Trutulis is National Director of Basel, England. She has worked in a variety of operational and strategic social work leadership roles, both in the UK and overseas, including working in Bosnia-Herzegovina as a child protection advisor. So, Lena and Maris, as, as we start our discussion, it would be helpful to have a quick uh, overview of what we mean by disasters so we can set the parameters of the conversation. I know different people may come to the topic with different uh, perspectives and, and preconceptions. And Lena, when I was conducting my preparation, I read your chapter in the academic textbook, The Handbook of Family Policy. And there you explain that a disaster arises when hazards, risks, exposure and vulnerabilities combine to produce human suffering beyond victim-survivors' capacity to cope. Could you uh, start us off by unpicking that definition a little bit, please? Yes, that is actually the UN definition. It's not mine. Mine is much broader because I include poverty as a disaster. But if we focus on the UN's definition, and all of this is very controversial, different people have different definitions, as you said. But um, the, the important thing about the UN's definition is that it is a sudden event that happens, so it's unexpected, like COVID, for example, and it challenges the resources and the capacities of either an individual or a community to cope. And so the scale of, of the event has to be quite large and beyond the normal coping capacities for it to be seen as a disaster. And they add to that, that to get um, enough resilience in the system back again after the disaster, you actually have to bring in external help in the form of either personnel or resources or other things. So it's about big in scale, big in numbers of people affected, big in the damage that it does and requiring external intervention. And that's the UN definition. And the idea of poverty then, is that endemic poverty in developing nations, Lena, or is that poverty also in the developed world? In both. 
uh, as okay. as far as I see it, it's you know the biggest disaster, the biggest number of people affected deleteriously or badly um, by something that happens to them and they can't cope because I see it as structural is poverty, either because people have no jobs or the jobs they have are poorly paid, and those are the two key things. And so we can do something about it, but it requires um, political will and it requires people working together like in the definition, the UN definition of disasters, it implies global solidarity, which is why, you know, external actors come to help. And of course, poverty must then compound uh, an individual's ability to actually respond to a a, a further disaster scenario. I'm just thinking of COVID in terms of the impacts on economically disadvantaged families, you know, no outside space for kids to play in, that sort of thing, Uh, no resources to keep kids entertained in the house. That's been a reality for a lot of the people social workers will have been supporting. Absolutely. And we know from the UK's COVID stats that it affects the most disadvantaged areas of the north and inner cities. Um, and that's why, you know, if you go to southwest England, you'll find very low levels of COVID. And even in some of the rural, more affluent areas within deprived areas, we also find it um, reflected in um, the Black and Asian and minority ethnic group communities, again, because of disadvantage. And globally, it's even worse. Most deaths, most damage, most economic losses of any kind of disaster, whether it's flooding, earthquakes, whatever, they happen in the global south. So it's because they're compounded by poverty. So if you're poor, you're already with your knees down on the ground and somebody's got to help you stand up by bringing resources in. And Maris, I'll put that to you then. Is there, any, is there anything you would add to the definition? Have you any perspective on that? I think the definition that's already been said, uh, which is is very broad, is important in terms of the disruption of functioning of of communities and society at a widespread level and directly having an impact in terms of human material, economic, environmental losses. But I also think there is something here about disaster is incredibly subjective and in terms of the definition of disaster is, is subjective. So when you think of people who have experienced personal crises in their life, whether that's linked to, for example, um, suicide of a family member, or as Lena has just described, abject poverty um, in a community, but within a family context, that is also a personal disaster in that moment for that person. And it can be very far reaching in terms of generations and the legacy of that personal disaster. So I think we need to be, um, as a society and also as social workers, very um, broad in terms of our understanding uh, about disaster and the definitions of that. Um, And it is about the impact on communities, but also the impact on individuals at so many levels. Um, and I'm sure as, as the, you know, as, as we talk today um, and share experiences, both from a professional perspective and a personal perspective, I think we will see how uh, disasters have a, a massive kind of ripple effect for, for generations and for communities in years to come. Yeah. And, and Maris, you and I know that another cost is the emotional cost yeah. of all these disasters absolutely. on individuals and communities yeah. and the grief and loss that follows that. Yeah, absolutely, Lena. And I, and again, as we, as we talk today, I just think, you know, in the present situation that we are in the context of a pandemic, 
the emotional impact already and the loss and the the generational impact is going to be major across the globe. And it's incredibly helpful to have that perspective of poverty and also um, issues around suicide to be considered disaster because the question I was going to ask was operating in disaster situations until the recent pandemic would for most social workers have been an unfamiliar experience. I'll now kind of reconsider that because often you know, social workers will be familiar with the impacts of poverty. They will be familiar with the impacts of mental health. So that is experience that they are very well versed in. But if we look at sort of the bigger picture, if we look at pandemics, if we look at floods, if we look at fires, if we look at climate change, does current social work education prepare social workers to respond in those sorts of disaster situations? I think, um, well, Maris can come in. Um, I'll just say a few things at the beginning. I think social work education in the UK, I hasten to add, because it is different in other countries, badly prepares um, students for intervening in disasters, which is why we often go for volunteers. Can a social worker volunteer for a disaster that happens, whether it's Grenfell, Manchester, Arena, Lockerbie and and Dunblane? Um, And the reason for that is, I think, that in, and, and it's more so in England than in Scotland, the government has decided for its own ideological purposes, and it's not just one government, it's all governments since Margaret Thatcher's have decided to narrow the focus of social work education in the UK, and in England particularly, removing probation, removing community work from the social work curriculum. That was a big mistake, and I don't mind saying this um, here or anywhere else. And the result is that people are focused on safeguarding children and adults more than anything else. So whilst they have the generic skills that are very important, like how to listen to people actively, how to um, get information from them that they need to develop a plan of action for resolving whatever problem it is, for bringing in coordinating resources so that they are meeting the needs of the people. Our social workers have that, and they're very good at that, I hasten to add. But what they don't have is that broader kind of structural analysis where they can link what happens to one individual and one family that they're working with to what's happening in their communities because communities are no longer something that they have to spend specific time on. I started teaching in social work as a community work lecturer. That was my beginning and it lasted for a few years um, and then it was taken off the curriculum by the government. So um, now you get that training only if there's a lecturer who happens to really believe in doing that. So you might get a two-hour workshop that tries to teach you what I used to do in, in, in a whole um, a module over a semester and across the year. Um, and then at Warwick, where I was at the time, you had to have community element in your placement right across the nine months of placement that you had at Warwick at the time. So it was quite, I think, quite revolutionary for its time. And that was probably why it was stopped, because Peter Leonard had nothing to do with me. I just went and worked there. It was Peter Leonard who was doing this at the time. And so I think we really do need to bring in all these other skills. And it's about understanding the place of British social work in the wider world as well. 
because we are involved, whether we like it or not, um, with our European colleagues, with our um, colleagues in China, India, Africa, and even Latin America, although more, more so in Spain than here in the UK. But um, more of us are developing those links because the disasters knows no borders. And, you know, the ones that everybody knows about that knows no border, air pollution. We get a lot of air pollution that doesn't come from the UK. Um, we get a lot of um, climate change that doesn't come from the UK. I mean, it did once upon we, a we time. We do export quite a bit of climate change though, Lena. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was saying. But we used to do a lot more once upon a time. We've started cleaning up our act in a way that other countries haven't. So I want I want to be critical of us, but I also want to give us credit for where, where we have done things. So let, just for example, on climate change in egg a little tiny island in Scotland, the whole of that island is um, self-sufficient in energy and it's all renewable. We can do it. We have the technology. We have the nows. I think we're a bright, creative nation, so we can do it. But it's the politics that gets in the way. It is. And I'd agree with, I'd agree with Lena. I, I think there is something also about um, social work as a global profession, and I think we have lost that in terms of some of the social work education and learning. But that isn't a direct criticism of the provider context. I think in terms of social work education and learning, particularly when we look at England, and I'm sure it's across other nations as well, but the requirements that those providers have to deliver modular courses, to fit in with regulatory standards in relation to learning and education, um, you know, all providers are very much a business uh, system approach at the moment with universities and HEI providers bringing in income generation. So I think there's an, an awful lot of content that needs to be covered on social work education courses, and it dilutes sometimes some of the subject matter. And I think particularly in terms of social work and disasters, and certainly from my own experience many moons ago in terms of training, um, you know, as a social worker, I think it was there was a lot more focus in terms of community mobilisation, um, community resources, looking at a strengths based approach in terms of communities, and that's something that we do need to revisit again. So I think there's a lot of scope um, for social workers in terms of CPD, uh, continuous professional development opportunities, both informally and through accredited programmes as well. And are there examples? Are there examples of university courses where that training is happening in the UK? Um, well, it, it is beginning to happen. It hasn't quite started yet, but it will start to happen in in Stirling. But before I go on to talk about that, I just want to add a, a little bit more to what Maris was saying, which was incredibly important. Maris, you and I know that one of the things that has been lost in the kind of contemporary standards and the tick boxing of have you met this competence and that competence in social work has been the loss of professional autonomy and professional discretion, the ability to think for yourself about what's going on. And I really, really miss that. And I'm glad I trained even earlier than you. Mine was in 18, 1980 to 81. So um, I'm so glad it happened then because it was always, well, what do you think? Why do you think this? And we do 
try and do that. And I think I've, you know, good social work educators will do that. And thank God we still have a lot of us around um, that do. But it's against the the kind of like the requirements rather than with them and and helping you. And, and that's wrong. And I think we really need to go back to relational social work, which is what we've lost, because in a disaster, you cannot deal with people who are really, it, it's hard even to describe how upset. And even though we know what COVID has done to us, if you can imagine that is a hundred times worse if you're worried about your child being stuck under debris on the first floor of a multi-story building, it is horrendous. Uh, we just, I mean, I know I've, I've gone through both now and it is not at all comparable. It is just so much off the scale. Um, but what you really need is the ability to think on your feet, to be able to make decisions, to amass your edu- um, your evidence very, very quickly because you don't have a lot of time. Somebody's life is depending on it. And that's what we've lost. And I really think that's regrettable. And, and I think, you know, this is where... Um, Baswin, I'm so glad with the new direction that Bas was taking with Maris and Ruth Ellen, particularly. Um, we're actually looking at some of the crucial bigger pictures and what we really need, not from the um, regulator's point of view, which is important. We can't forget them. We are a regulated profession and so we should be. But we also need to have our voices professionals because at the end of the day, we know from experience what is really going on on the ground. Nobody else can take that away from us. And we're the unique profession that really knows what's going on in families and communities. Everybody else can tinker and skate on the surface, but we're actually down underneath in the um, mm-hmm. the deeper levels. So I just wanted to say that before I go to, to talk about the, the, the course, which will begin in um, February. That's why it's not quite begun yet. It's received approval. Um, and that is the MSC in Disaster Interventions and Humanitarian Aid, where we hopefully it's very intensive because it's just a 12 month program, mainly because of cost considerations for the students. Um, and knowing how expensive it is um, for them to go through their training nowadays. Um, We have decided at Sterling that we will do this with people as adult learners who think and learn from each other as well as uh, teach each other. Um, And so that's going to be a very different approach with emphasis on relational thinking and also knowing your competencies and being able to actually um, defend the skills that you have and use and why you're using them. And um, that's why it's very exciting. And, and we are going to begin later on in, in next, um, next month, yes, later on next month with two continuing professional development um, modules um, for people who cannot take 12 months to do a course, although you can do it part-time as well. And that is really exciting. And it's the first one of its kind in the UK, not just in Scotland. Okay. And it's not just for social workers though, Lena, sure it's not. No, it's it's not. It it will be primarily social workers and it will be led by a social work educator, i.e. me. Um because uh, I wanted social work. Um, Social work has been so invisible in disasters. And that was what got me into disasters in the first place in the 204 tsunami. I wanted us to say, look, we're here because we always were, but in the background, providing um, practical help 
food, clothing, shelter, reuniting families, medicines, getting people access to doctors and so on. So very practical aid. But nobody ever asked us, oh, what do you think of this disaster? They always went to the medics or the psychiatrists or the um, seismologists or some other physical science-based discipline and never the social science-based social workers who were doing most of the heavy graft on the ground. Um, and and that's why I think we need to discover our voice again and why I'm so happy that um, Baz was doing that and trying to do that despite the kind of um, hurdles that are put in, in our ways. But it is really important. And I, I'm going to let you come in, Maris, because you look like you want to say something. And just before you do, Maris, if I could just put something else to you in relation to CPD on the job training. Is it, is it important that um, disaster management is a skill that all social work staff are versed in or should it be seen as a, a very specific skill which certain staff specialise in to ensure that there's a real depth of knowledge across different services? Have you a view on that? Yeah, personally and professionally, I think all, all social work staff should be versed in uh, um, social work disaster training and CPD and learning opportunities. I think what is important, though, is that it may not be the right area for everyone. And so what I mean is that everybody should actually have that training. But I think we've got to be mature enough as a profession to acknowledge that for some people, that may be an area that they particularly do not want to work in. And that could also be in relation to, for example, personal experiences that they've they've had themselves um, people who may have experienced some recent loss um, and you know learning and hearing from social workers who've been directly involved in disasters and talking about um, for example situations such as Manchester and Grenfell and Hillsborough and Kegworth you know we've heard about some social workers who were able to respond and to support and some people who actually felt really overwhelmed by the situation and I think what's important is how we support those who care for others in that context but also acknowledging that on a given day it may not be the right situation for a particular member of staff and that needs to be supported. In terms of the um, the CPD training and development that we're looking at with local authorities. And this is non-accredited. So in terms of some of the work that Lena has talked about, that's about formal accredited training, which is absolutely fabulous. And that's been about the partnership development and also an opportunity for for modular, in a sense, non-accredited training, which is brilliant. But we want local authority partners, particularly in, in, in England, to create opportunities at, um, at a local level for social workers to access online learning, you know, focus groups going through the CPD opportunities. And we're in the process of the, the um, Basra England steering group with, with all stakeholders and, and Lena, representatives from the Department of Health and Social Care, actively working towards these models of CPD. And that will also include areas in relation to self-care and attention, looking at um, ethical practice. These are just a couple of the examples um, working within the, you know, a legal framework and the context of that framework and the importance of co-production and making sure that people with lived experience, that their voices are heard and the voices of community and the capacity and strength of community. 
But what is critical, and, and this links back to some really creative work that we've we've been involved in, and Lena um, certainly led in terms of some two-day, it was a two-day course um, that was non-accredited, was get, making sure that at the heart of this training, we had people with lived experience. You know, we had uh, Margaret Aspinall, who shared her experiences in terms of Hillsborough, we had Mariam, a social worker who was involved in first response in terms of Grenfell. And I think it's really important that we collectively learn and share together. Um, but the training and development is core. It, it's core to social work practice. It's core to, to our professional identity as social workers. And it's integral to the, the context that we're working in now within the pandemic. And sadly, you know, we know it'll be a context for the future because the pandemic isn't going to go away, certainly at this time. And we are looking that we know there will be future, sadly, disasters as well. Uh, you triggered off something in my head, um, Maris, as you always do. <laughs> um, but um, I just wanted to emphasize again, yes, it isn't for everyone, but even those that get involved can suffer trauma from this for years after. And I was just reminded when you were speaking of someone that I know who worked in the Dunblane disaster and is still traumatized by what they saw. And I remember this was where children were shot in their school by a, a scoutmaster in Dunblane in Scotland. And so, you know, that was about nearly 30 years ago, not far off of that. Um, and he's still traumatized by what he saw and what he had to do. But like a professional, and we all do this, and this is why I want to emphasize your point about self-care, but it's more than that. It's about the employers recognizing this work carries a cost and they need to be there supporting the social workers, not just today and tomorrow and the next day, but maybe for years, because yes, this person carried on working for years later, but is still traumatized by the event. So I think I think we really need to highlight this is an important element of training and we need to do more discussion, I think, um, about the support that we need to give our managers in training as well as the frontline social workers. We've tended to focus on them quite rightly because this is where the biggest gap is, but we also need to train the, the leaders in the profession and just in relation to that point on self-care and in my role with Basel Northern Ireland I look after the association's press and media work and political engagement activity I was recently engaging with members to compile a, a submission to go to the Northern Ireland Assembly Health Committee's inquiry into COVID-19 and care homes and what was clear from the engagement with members was that it's only now almost nine months since the lockdown in the UK that some of the anxiety and the stress and the burnout is actually starting to manifest, you know, at the beginning. And this is something which gets reflected in the social work through the troubles research, which we did in Northern Ireland um, and we'll be profiling in the next episode. Social workers were saying we just got on with the challenge. But then it is after the fact, it's down the line, years down the line sometimes, that they begin to feel the impacts. So in relation to the current pandemic, Lena and Maris, in relation to COVID and the, the stress and anxiety that's being caused to practitioners now, 
Do you feel that um, employers are doing enough? And if you don't, what more should employers be doing to support their staff at all levels? Yeah, yeah. You know, Baswa undertook a survey at the beginning of March 2020. So it was at the beginning of lockdown and it was really to... Um, gather feedback and views from social workers about social work practice during COVID. Um, and what I would say, being honest, I don't. I think across the board, both in terms of organisations and practitioners and workers at different levels, I think there was, a, you know, I think there was a hell of a lot of learning. I don't think people were prepared, and that isn't a criticism. That's just about being honest about the situation. I think there were issues about accessing personal protective equipment that raised lots of challenges. You know, um, practitioners were having to deal with lockdown in terms of adult caring responsibilities, people that may have been shielding, uh, children that were uh, not in school and trying to home learn. And I think also there was a lot of um, contradiction in terms of national and local guidance as well, and people scrambling around to actually... Um, produce good guidance. And I think Baswork was an absolute, uh, and I'm not just saying in terms of self-praise as an organisation, but credit to Baswork. I think there was a, a, a lot of investment in terms of guidance and support, support for practitioners in the field. What I would say is I think I think some employers have worked really hard to try and um, support staff in terms of remote working, developing systems in terms of buddy support and peer support systems. Um, but I don't think anyone could have prepared for the sense of isolation for the workforce. And these are things that I think will have an impact for many people further down the line in terms of their own well-being as practitioners, but also dealing with some really traumatic situations of loss. As you've cited, Andy, you know, families that have been separated, loved ones that were separated, for example, who could not see people uh, residing in care homes, people who lost loved ones and they were not able to say goodbye as part of their end of life. And this also applies to practitioners. This applies to social workers who were experiencing, you know, these very poignant personal experiences as well as trying to do the job. So I think I think there will be an impact further down the line uh, for practitioners personally and professionally. I think people are tired. I think there's fatigue. Um, and I think the, um, the, the level of morale and people preparing... Lena and I have had this discussion rather than talking about different waves of the pandemic. You know, wave one isn't over. This is, this is about a resurgence, but it isn't about wave one, wave two, wave three. This is about living through a pandemic and the impact and the emotional and psychological impact, I think, is going to be significant for the workforce. Yes, I, I, I agree with you absolutely, Maris. And I think we really need to give some thought to how we can better support the social workers, because I, I agree with you, none of us knew what was happening. And certainly when I started supporting social workers in China in early January, I had to read up. I, thank God I can read quickly and, and across all um, physical and social sciences um, and absorb the stuff. But there was just no way anybody could have been prepared. So social work in this country weren't prepared. Social workers and their managers weren't prepared, first of all, because we'd had austerity, which had cut back 
on the number of people working in social work. I mean, we've always undertrained ever since I've been training social workers, and we really are reaping the consequences of that now because one of the reasons people are fatigued is they're overworked because there aren't enough social workers doing the job. They try to stretch that with volunteers, but they can't do the same kind of work that the qualified social worker does. So there's kind of like a juggling act on both sides, the line managers, and the practitioners. And that is very costly in terms of thinking and emotional energy and investment. And I I also think the um, support that was offered was very kind of limited, partly because people didn't know what to do, but partly because you, you put your finger on it, Maris, when you said social workers are victim survivors of the pandemic as well. Um, as professionals working in it. And that means that really we need additional kinds of um, support. Most social workers that I've spoken to, and they're much more limited than the numbers that replied to the survey, are um, using peer support that's been, and their friends and their families. They're the ones that they rely on for support for these extra complicating factors, I guess we could call them. And that's not really good enough. Two times Boris Johnson mentioned social work as essential workers and then never says, and here's how I'm going to help them by providing resources, by increasing training, funding for training, because training was one of the first budgets to be cut under austerity. So why are we scrabbling around like we are? Um, And I think we need to kind of have these kind of forthright, I think that's the word I'm looking for, discussions with the people who are making the decisions because I think I really want to praise and celebrate social workers in this country and in all countries and their responses um, to COVID-19. And I know that in, in this country and in other countries, social workers have dug into their pockets to help service users with buying food for them and all sorts of things. And And we shouldn't have to do that because in a rich country like this one, India, which is not quite a rich country yet, but will be one day soon, I hope. Um, I could see why they'd have to do it, but why here? And why food banks? Food banks that don't even have enough food for the people who go to them. And you know what? I came here in 68. I was young and idealistic, and I was so happy. There were no beggars on the street in this country, no food banks. So why are we inventing all these things years after North America to its shame? Um, has had them and hasn't got rid of them. Um, And I really would like us to have those conversations because I think we need to. We need to empower ourselves as a profession and the social workers and service users, and we got to do it together. And I think COVID has taught us that, if nothing else. We're not going to get anywhere unless we do it all together because we're all suffering in our own different ways. Thanks, Lena. And we've reflected a lot on COVID and the challenges that social workers are facing. I was just wondering if, if you would both want to speak to an example of another social work response in a, in a different disaster um, scenario that really typifies the unique role that social workers play. Yeah, I mean, certainly from my experiences and in terms of the work that I did uh, and was involved in it in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, I worked with some incredible community development workers and some amazing social workers. And I would say the the strength and the rebuilding of communities from a, a recovery um, context was so important. But what was critical, and I think my learning, 
was about everybody's experience was so unique. And that's what we're going to learn from COVID. And with the horrors of what actually happened also to, to colleagues that I worked in, in, in Sarajevo and Tuzla and Banyaluka, um, I would actually say it was also the importance of when pe people felt able to, the storytelling, and that the narrative wasn't lost and people's history and identity and experiences were heard. And that goes back to my early discussion about the importance of the voices of people with lived experience. So, for example, in my first week of arriving um, in country, um, people shared with me their experiences of seeing loved ones shot, um, experiences of rape, experiences of the, the horrors of working with colleagues and perceptions of people of friends and then what conflict did to that situation and it resulted in, in people against people, communities against communities um, and also the identity that people would have seen themselves prior to the conflict as Yugoslavian and then were actually describing themselves as something else else based on um, community identity and ethnicity. Um, so I, I think the importance of voice, the importance of learning and shared learning across communities and the importance of humanity and dignity and the holistic value base and it goes back to social justice, you know, our core professional values as social workers is built upon a foundation of human rights and social justice. And it's so important that within our profession and as leaders and educators and employers that we promote those fundamental mm -hmm. rights at every opportunity. And I think that's got to be personified during the pandemic that we're living in. We have got to hold on to human rights and social justice. And it's, it's going to be critical in terms of getting us through this. I, I agree, Maris. I think we always have to go back to social justice and human rights. And it's not just in the UK. But um, I wanted to comment very briefly before I give an international example on Grenfell, because there I had thought for a very, very brief moment that um, Theresa May, when she got social workers involved as key workers, I thought, yes, we're going to get somewhere now. <laughs> Was I ever um, to be disillusioned? Um, but she actually got rid of social workers as key workers because they were standing up for people's human rights and social justice, including in housing, in employment, in discrimination, because they were from other countries, as some of them, um, some from Europe, but some from other countries as well. And um, a lot of them were kind of like, well, do you really belong here because your skin colour is different? There was all that kind of discrimination. There was a very deeply unpleasant media narrative around that time. Absolutely. But social workers stood up against that media narrative and that's why they were frozen out and then um, brought, uh, and this included the, um, as I know, one of the senior managers of social services in um Kensington and um, Chelsea and um, 
I thought, well, what does a business management company, and there were two of them that, that took over, KPMG and Pricewaterhouse, and um, what do they know about social work? Absolutely nothing. And then when you talk to some of the social workers after they were kind of pushed out and had to come back in as volunteers rather than as key workers, it was really devastating for them because the things that they were trying to do, which was to empower service users, just couldn't happen in the new regime that was set up. So this is where I really think, again, we need to reclaim our um, power as a profession. If we're professionals doing a job, we know better than politicians what should be done. We have to be held accountable to them, but they shouldn't be telling us how to do our job because often they do the wrong things. And, and Grenfell is a perfect example of that. In terms of upholding the human rights um, of, of service users as well, even in the COVID pandemic, you know, from the outset, there were, you know, the reports of Dominic Cummings displaying a really callous attitude to the well-being of older people. Do you remember it was when they were considering the herd immunity approach to dealing with the pandemic? That was something that needed challenged um, and that was something which was deeply wrong. Um, what, what, so in terms of the role of social work, social workers have an advocacy role at the grassroots level, but then there's also a more strategic role which Baswa and others can play. How do you see social workers exerting the greatest influence, um, Lena, to ensure that uh, human rights are upheld in the context of a disaster scenario? I think we have to do it at many levels. And that's been our problem has been that because we work as individuals and the same thing with key workers, we tend to advocate for the individual family. But we need to get together as a profession to say these are the things we do. And we are beginning to do that. And again, I have to credit Baswa for taking the lead on this and saying, let's get our voices heard. This is what we do. We advocate. And remember, we have 18 roles that we've um, identified that social workers carry out during a disaster. So we need to start really proclaiming and getting much more say in the media and um, using our organizations to get our voice in the media. And we need to do more of that. I think we need to start engaging. Like for me, this goes back to some of our history. There was a time when the voice of social work was heard in Westminster. It was at the time of Dame Eileen Young Husband, when social work did include casework, community work, and one-to-one work with children and families. I think we need somebody like that who is going to be a champion for social work in the corridors of power or a group of social workers and academics and service users who do that role. Um, And I think we also need to influence the um, employers because employers as a group um, have not come out in favour. I think the last time they actually did this as a group was probation and, and magistrates, when I got attacked for being um, on the side of um, anti-racism, and I was really seriously attacked because I had to get police protection then um, to protect my son and me. But anyway, um, that's a long time ago. But the employers have not said, this is what we want social workers to do. They've been quite critical. We want social workers who come in on a Monday morning and we don't have to tell them anything. They just go in and do the job. Well, most of them do. Um, But that's not what they should be expecting of them. They should be expecting them as people who come in who should be treated with respect and dignity from the word go as workers with rights. And I think we're not treated like that by and large. 
Um, and that goes in, in, in a lot of other places, not just in social work departments. But I think we need to start arguing that the people that we deal with are the same people that doctors deal with. They're exactly the same group. And in fact, the numbers are the same, 1.5 million. So we need to start making alliances with all these other professionals who are dealing with the same people we are and saying, look, we are all, there's not one of us professionals that can be done without. We all have to work together to provide a good service. And that service should be, well, I'm, yeah, I've been accused of being elitist because I want a Rolls Royce service for everybody. I think also it's really important to to hold on to, you know, the partnerships where there have been those successes, which are really important. So we've worked really well um, with the Association of Directors of Adult Social Services in England, ADAS, and we've developed the joint statement about the role of social workers in disasters. I think it's also about how we influence uh, politicians and civil servants. We've had some great support um, from Lynn Romeo. She's currently on sabbatical, but she's chief social worker in England and adults. I think it's how we influence the policy makers, but also at a local level in terms of making sure that social workers are recognised as key workers in terms of emergency planning and that their role in terms of civil contingency. <coughs> and I think it's also about how social workers themselves and employers come together in partnership with the communities that they serve. I was speaking to Margaret Aspinall earlier today and, you know, she was talking about the battle in terms of, the, you know, the, the Hillsborough Family Support Group. We're talking now 32 years and there's still more judicial processes that are going on. But one of the things that she really emphasised this morning was her social worker who she does talk about, well, she was talking about two this morning, Antoinette and Peter. And she was saying, without that professional persistency of Antoinette coming back again and back again, knocking on that door, when Margaret didn't want to open the door, she was grieving for her son. She did not want to open the door. And you had that social worker who came back time and time again. And the critical change was when Margaret needed to go to the cemetery and the social worker arrived that day. Margaret didn't drive. And she said, I'll take you. And that's what, you know, the importance of key workers and social workers. It's not always in the immediate, you know, but they are a blue light service as well in the, in the immediate. But they are there for the, for the longer term recovery for, you know, the times when people have left, you know, the friends have gone, the family don't want to hear the stories anymore, the families can't cope with the pain, that social workers play such an important role in building and supporting individuals and communities. But one thing, just to finish off on this, that I think is really important, is when we talk about the cycle of disasters and recovery, we must always think about the personal impact of recovery and again today and I would reinforce it for every disaster that we've talked about so far but people saying and Margaret really reinforced it you never recover on a personal level it's always with you and that's something that we must never lose sight of when we look at different models of disaster recovery yeah 
And that that is absolutely um, true, Maris. Um, and it doesn't matter how many years have gone by. And, and Margaret has always said that. Um, so, yeah, I think the other thing that it would be really um, useful for us to do as well is to start talking. And you're quite right. We should be highlighting the good news stories. We have done, as as we said earlier on in this conversation, we have amazing social workers in this country who have done excellent work that nobody ever hears of. And we need to get those good news stories out because we should be proud and celebrate um, our professional achievements. And yet that hardly ever happens. So more celebrations, please, of, of the wonderful capacities that social workers have. But I think the other thing we have to do is we do have to talk about resources. And this is very difficult in this country. I know when I went to Scandinavia and was working with them on kind of um, issues around children and supporting poor children, and they were complaining that their caseload, this was when I was still, I was doing social work at the time, and our caseload was 150 at the time. We couldn't, you know, it was just a pile on our desks this high that we couldn't do much with. But um, they said, we've gone from 8 to 12, and it is so awful. Now, that's quite a percentage increase, you know, whereas the average at the time we had 150 cases lying around. Um, our, our average was about 70. Um, and I said to them, well, it, we would just be so happy to do that. So how do, the, how do you do it? And they said... Um, we get the politicians are on our side. And then I met some of these politicians. And the first thing they said to me, oh, a social worker, we're so glad to meet you. We need them. Now, I thought, I said, can I have that in writing so we can give it to our politicians? But maybe we need to bring some of them here to kind of tell our politicians, actually, you should value your um, social workers. And you value them by giving them the equipment they need as well as the training and the skills they need. And those are the two things that we have not had enough of in this country since I've been involved for decades now in social work practice, education and training. And I just think we really need to have those partnerships, those conversations across the whole piece of our profession because we are holistic and because we are holistic, we shouldn't be just taking little pieces out and saying, we'll just do this little bit now and it'll change that because just changing this little bit might change the little bits around it, but it won't change the whole picture. And we need to change that whole picture. That's for me what is a step change, a transformational change. We've had lots of little piecemeal changes in this profession. Um, but not the, the transformative change that we really need to do the best we can. And every social worker I've ever met always wants to do the best they can. I have never met one, even in training, um, that hasn't wanted to do that. Thanks, Lena. I have one final question, and it concerns climate change. It's clear that climate change is creating disaster situations across the globe and increasingly will do so. So I'm thinking of uh, wildfires on the west coast of the, of the United States and also Australia and also major flooding incidents much closer to home. 
How is social work as a profession placed to respond? You know, I know that Baswa has voiced its commitment to supporting UK-wide and international efforts to promote climate and environmental justice, but what more needs to be done? Well, I think it would be helpful to have training in this for a start because we don't, we never even talk about um, climate change again unless you have somebody like me as your um your um, lecture, but um, very few. I think I can name about hmm, three or four social work educators in this country who talk about climate change. That is not true in other in other cases. Even in the U.S., where we have um, an American president that um, denies climate change, there are universities who are engaging in climate change. Very small ones. Ask social workers like helping people develop urban gardens. Same thing in Canada. Lots of work being done because of climate change, planting trees and doing all sorts of very simple things, including recycling. And and one of our famous um, mothers of social work, Jane Addams, what did she do in Chicago to deal with poverty in the um, west end of Chicago? Well, she went and got them to recycle all their materials and sell it. And guess what? It did reduce poverty because it gave them a job that they could get paid for. Um, So I think we do have those examples in our history and we have those examples here. And I know that, for example, at at Durham, where I was, school children were seen as a really key point of change. So Maris, right down your street, um, because they are really good at grasping climate change initiatives. And if social workers would engage with them on these sorts of issues too, they become the um, ambassadors in their own families and communities. And the place that is doing this par excellence, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of the examples I know, is Bangladesh, where they have the cyclones. And the children know about planting mangrove trees so that they can have these groves that protect them from the ocean surges. And they will tell their parents about what happens when the water in their wells becomes polluted because of salination and all sorts of things. And they're the ones who drag the parents off to evacuate because they know what to do. They've been taught in school. So they become the best ambassadors. And I think we could do lots of interesting things like that. And some of them have done it um, in in BC, which is um, another interesting place. Um, social work families who were in, um, their children were in danger of being taken away with them, were involved in developing roof gardens on the agency where they were going to kind of get support for um, learning how to be, be better parents. So I think there are many, many things and they're not that far removed from our day-to-day practice. Thanks, Lena. Lena and Maris, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been a really, really interesting conversation. I know that I've learned a lot and I'm sure that everybody who listens will also learn a lot as well. I'm pretty sure this won't be the last time I speak to both of you. I hope you'll both come back on to Let's Talk Social Work sometime in the future. Definitely. Uh, You just call us. Tremendous. (laughs) I like that enthusiasm. Until next time, thank you so much. Cheers. Bye. Take care. Bye.